This is a recording from a sermon from Light Church in San Diego, California. For more information, please visit lightsandiego.com. There's, there's two goals tonight, uh, and, and so every time I'm writing a sermon and writing a message, I just start praying. I say, Lord, what's, when people walk out of the room, what do, I, what do you want them to be left with? And there's really two distinct things that uh, are on my heart that I think that the Lord wants to just give each one of us tonight. And the, the first thing is a greater understanding and to be challenged in our understanding of Jesus' power. Um, and specifically not the power that he had, but the power he has. Um, and, and this is, I, I can just confess, as a pastor, I can get caught up into reading these stories, and I'm, and I'm literally amazed. I'm like, that was awesome. But I lived my life like it was a history event and not the current presence of God in my life. So my prayer tonight is that we would actually open up our minds and our hearts to Jesus' power for today. And to press that our imaginations, our spiritual understanding of Jesus' ability to come. And I love, I love this verse up here written in the Lord of the Rings font. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So the Jesus we're going to read about tonight is the same Jesus that's here. It's the same Jesus in your life. It's going to be the same Jesus who shows up in your office tomorrow. The same Jesus who's with you as you put your kids to bed. The same Jesus who's with you as you're in school. This is the same Jesus that we're reading about didn't change. As a matter of fact, he gave all of us his spirit, the Holy Spirit, to continue to encounter that power um, in our lives and through our lives as well to other people. So that's the first one. We want to to have a greater understanding of Jesus' power. And the second thing is a greater understanding of his love. Um, and here's the reality. I could spend every sermon that Light Church ever does talking about God's love, and we could not understand it enough. Matter of fact, Paul, when he writes his letter to the church in Ephesus, says that I ask that the Holy Spirit would give you the power to understand how deep and great and wide God's love is, which means his love is so vast that we actually need strength to even understand it. Um, and so those are my two prayers tonight. We walk with a greater understanding of God's power and a greater understanding of his love. And the reality is we probably need both of those things, and they go so close together. So let me just tell you a brief story um, about uh, the way I encountered power and love at the same moment. When I was a kid, um, we had moved into a new house. We moved a lot when I was a kid, and we showed up at this new house, and it was, I was really stoked on it. It was two stories, the first two-story house I ever lived in. And I'm upstairs, and I'm right at the age where I can take baths by myself, so like 16. Um, so I'm there, just, just kidding. Um, like, weirdo. So I'm there, I'm a young boy, right? And I'm taking a bath by myself, just being like as grown up as I could, be setting up my G.I. Joes, right, and my Ninja Turtles around the perimeter, and I'm getting ready for the war. The bath is filling, the bubbles are in there. It's going to be a good time at my house. And I, all of a sudden, I realized that the bath that my dad had started for me, I don't know how to turn off. I'm in a new house. I don't know how to work the faucets. I'm not the smartest guy in the room. It might shock you now, but um, back when I was a kid, I just wasn't the sharpest tool in the shed. And so I'm trying to do what every man does, and I try and do it himself, right? I'm just like, I can figure this out. I got it. And pretty soon, the water's about to spill over the edge. And I'm like, okay, I should probably ask for help. So in my deep, burly voice, I said, Dad! You know, because it's really how I talked. And so I just yell, I'm like, Dad, come, come help me. So my dad, who's a pretty big dude, he's like six foot four, 
um, comes running up the stairs, just like boom, 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 like just running up the stairs. And I hear him coming, and he's, he starts rapping on the door, and he's like, he's like, Benjamin, open, open up the door. I'm like, okay, um, Mickey Mouse. <laughs> so I come, I come to the door, and I start um, trying to unlock the door, and I can't unlock it. And at this point, you realize I'm not good at doing things with my hands, so I can't turn off the water. I can't open the door, and I'm trying to open it. And my dad on the other side of the door continues to knock, and he thinks that I'm burning. That's, that's the, like, the, the, the sense. In his mind, his imagination is that I'm being burned by scalding hot water. And so as he's rapping, all of a sudden, he comes up with the brilliant idea that he's going to get through the door no matter what. So as I'm unlocking the door, my dad literally, I kid you not, just goes, boom, and literally kicks the door off of its hinges. And while I'm standing there in my birthday suit, just blasted across this very large bathroom into the tub. G.I. Joe's goes flying. And my dad is looking at his passed out son with a door laying on the floor. And he's just like, oh my gosh, what have I done? And so he, run, he runs in, grabs a towel, picks me, my limp little body up. And we go and we sit down in his room in his chair and he's holding. He's like, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. And I remember like coming to consciousness with two thoughts in my mind. One was, wow, my dad is strong. <laughs> like, I had no idea. Like, my dad's a lawyer. I thought he was a nerd. I mean, he's really strong. And, uh, and the second thing, I mean, to this day, there's something in me as a dad that wants to kick down a door just once in my life. Um, my landlords are in the room. I won't do it at the house. Don't worry. Um, well, someday I'm going to kick down a door just to see if I'm man enough. But anyways, but I, remember realizing, uh, I remember realizing that my dad was like so much stronger than I had realized. And at the same time as he's holding me, I know it sounds funny, but I remember that embrace like it was yesterday. I remember my dad holding me in the amount of love and empathy he had in that moment. Um, and, and, both of the, and both of those thoughts are so ingrained into my, my being of my dad had both of these things at the same time. Now, he displayed them through a really terrible way. But what we're going to find here in this story tonight is that Jesus displays both of these things for his children, for the people he loves, is his power and his love. So if you guys have a Bible, you can turn with me to Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8, and as you're turning there, um, we're going to read starting in verse 18. Uh, I want to give you guys a little bit of a background, a little bit, kind of paint the picture for you guys, especially for those who are new. We just came out of a series of teachings called the Sermon on the Mount. This is Jesus fresh on the scene. This new Jewish rabbi from Nazareth shows up, and he's unlike anyone the world has ever seen, and he teaches in a way that no one has ever seen. And he gives this incredibly profound sermon on everything his audience, so his, his context was a Jewish-Palestinian context. Jesus, I don't know if you know this, Jesus was Jewish, very Jewish. Um, some people even think that he was a Pharisee. I mean, like, he was so ingrained into that culture, that way of thinking. And so his immediate audience was, 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 lived in that world. And so if you were a Jew living in ancient Palestine, your world was, was made up primarily of what was called the Torah, and the Torah, the first five books of our Bible, was there, um, the first five books of, of, of theirs. And so Matthew, who's writing down the biography of Jesus, does this in a way that his audience would have really picked up. And so some of the things he does is he breaks up his book into five sections, just like the Torah was. 
he writes down the story of Jesus' life not with a chron- chronological order, but with an order that actually mapped itself on the life of Moses. So what he's trying to reveal is the same way that Moses delivered the children of Israel from Egypt, Jesus, the new and greater Moses, is delivering his people from sin. And so he's doing this in a really incredible way. I wish, I wish we had more time to dive into it. But he gives this incredible sermon. And after he gives this sermon, it looks just like Moses on Mount Sinai as he gives the Ten Commandments. You probably, even if you haven't been in church, you're familiar with the Ten Commandments, right? Like don't murder, don't commit adultery. These things that have kind of become a, kind of a, a foundation for morality around the world is given on Mount Sinai through Moses. Well, Jesus, just like Moses, gets up on a mountain, delivers his sermon, his message, but instead of giving them the law, he gives them himself. And the way he does this is at the end of the Ten Commandments, I'm not going to read it tonight, but if you read the end of Exodus 20, after he gives the Ten Commandments, there's this incredibly powerful scene where there is smoke and fire on top of this mountain, like God's presence, like the God of the universe is on top of this mountain. And Moses says, let's go and meet with God. He's inviting us. And the people of Israel, just like a kid looking at a big roller coaster, said, ah, nope, (laughs) I'm good. Moses, you go for us. And it says that the people stood at a distance. So in God's power that he displayed on this mountain, he invited people into relationship with him. But because of humanity's own fear of God, they said, no, thanks. Moses, you go talk to God and you tell us what he says. And I think that it's, this isn't just Israel. This is us all the time. There's something about the, the thought of a very real God governing the universe, wanting relationship with us. It just scares us. And so we listen to pastors and podcasts and books because it's way safer than actually sitting down and thinking that the God of the universe might speak to you. And so this has been kind of the Jewish context for their entire existence as, as, a, as a people and as a culture. Well, Jesus comes, gives this fresh take on the Ten Commandments, on the Torah, and instead of saying, come to me, he gets off the mountain and he goes and starts touching people and healing people that they would have said would be the last people that would ever be able to come and approach God. This is huge, especially if you're in here, if you're in here in church tonight and you have this idea that like Christians are like people who think they're better or immoral. No, no, no. The story of Jesus is not a bunch of people trying to get themselves all cleaned up to go to God. The story of Jesus is him going to the people that the world has forgotten. So he gets off the mountain, and he goes, and the very first person he touches, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, is a leper, and he heals him. And that day, that would have been absolutely not okay because of ceremonial cleansing laws and stuff like that. But then he goes a step further, and he goes and heals a centurion's servant who's not even a Jewish person, which would have been shocking to his audience. And then he goes and he records healing Simon's mother-in-law, which would have been a woman. And, And for Jewish literature to even talk about a woman being healed would have been absolutely... Um, provocative during that day. So here comes Jesus, and he's going to the margins of culture and society, saying, I'm for you. You think that God hasn't been for you, but let me give you a fresh understanding that I've always been for you. And what happens next is where we find ourselves in the story is these crowds start to gather, right? People start following this guy. I'm like, this guy's crazy. Look at what he's doing. The message he's giving, the ministry he's having is drawing these people into it. And the very first thing that he does after he heals these people, as it talks about these two men approach him and say, hey, we want in. We want to be a part of your crew. We want to be, a, we want to be one of your apprentices, your disciples. Uh, can we follow you? Can we be a part of this? 
And so this is what it says in verse 18. When Jesus saw the crowd, so think about this, man. The guy's like just going, just the, the crowd and the momentum around him was just going crazy. Around him, he gave orders to cross to the other side of the lake. So he's on this shore. You can imagine thousands of people around him. And so he does something that no American would ever do. I mean, any American who started a, a business, an organization, a ministry, and is gaining that sort of momentum, you capitalize on it. Jesus is like, peace. I'm leaving. So, so he says, let's go on the boat. Let's go to the other side of the lake. Then a teacher of the law, which would have been like a, a scribe or kind of the religious elite of the day, comes to him and says, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. It's like a bold statement. This is Jesus' response. Jesus replied, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Pretty much saying, you don't have what it takes. I'll go wherever you go. And Jesus is like, you don't get it. Like, following me is not the most comfortable thing. And I think you might like comfort more than me. And then a second person comes to him, and, he, and Jesus says something even more, um, more challenging. He says, another disciple said to him, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. But Jesus told him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Now, as someone who has grieved and is recently grieved, I, I, if you read this at first glance, it's just like a jerk move by Jesus. You're like, ouch. Is there a nicer way you could see this? Like, you should watch the Mr. Rogers movie. This is not <laughs> what we do here. But if there's something, and here's just a rule. If there's ever something you read in the Bible that says, like, man, that doesn't really seem like it aligns with the character of God, study it. There might be something else going on here. So let, let me just explain what's happening here. Most scholars across the board agree with what's happening here. This guy's dad didn't just die. He's about to die is what the Greek word is alluding to. So his dad's about to die. And as he's about to die, he knows that not only does he need to bury him, but he also knows there's an inheritance coming. And so what he's doing is approaching Jesus. He's like, I'm your guy, Jesus. I'll follow you. But I have this really amazing opportunity that's about to come. So can I just handle that first? And then I'm, your, I'm all yours. And so the first guy had comfort. The second guy had opportunity. And Jesus says, listen, I need to be your comfort. I need to be your opportunity. And if you're going to follow me, that's what it takes. And so we, we look at this story, and it, it, out of the gate, it seems like, man, Jesus is, it, following Jesus seems like it costs a lot. And can I just tell you, I just want to be frank with you. I don't want to just talk, talk to you about Jesus and be like, guys, it's easy. It's the best thing. It's the best get-rich-quick scheme you've ever heard. No, 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 no. Following Jesus costs something, but this is the other thing I want to tell you tonight. The cost is great, but the cause is greater. This is so huge. The cost of following Jesus is a real thing. But the cost of not following Jesus is actually more. Dallas Willard, who's this brilliant theologian, he actually ended up being the head of the philosophy department at USC, talks about this very concept. He talks about there's a difference between the cost of following Jesus and the cost of non-discipleship, which means you're, you're the cost of when you don't follow Jesus. And this is what he says, and I think is so brilliant. He says, the cost of non-discipleship is far greater, even in this life alone. Then the price paid to walk with Jesus. Non-discipleship costs abiding peace. It costs a life penetrated throughout by love. Faith that sees everything in light of God's overriding governance for good. Hopefulness that stands firm in the most discouraging of circumstances. Power to do what is right and withstand the forces of evil. In short, it costs exactly that abundance of life Jesus said he would bring. 
The cross-shaped yoke of Christ is, after all, an instrument of liberation and power to those who live in it with him and learn the meekness and lowliness of heart that brings rest to the soul. This, I want you to focus on this last line here. The correct perspective is to see following Christ not only as a necessity, but as the fulfillment of the highest human possibilities and as life in the highest plane. Love that. This is don't look at following Jesus like a necessity. It is the fulfillment of the deepest desires of humanity. It, it, it brings you to the highest possibilities you could ever imagine. And so let me give you a quick example of, of this, of this understanding of a great cost but a greater cause. So uh, the, the other week I'm with my, um, my family who's in, who's in town, and I love getting to spend time with them. Uh, but there also means there's like 30 cousins like running around. It's crazy. And so I was like uncle on lifeguard duty. So I'm like dressed like this in my jeans and shoes and my shirt. And, and as this is going on, I'm watching my, my, my nephews and nieces swim, and I have this really cute little nephew named Wesley. He's five years old, and he's got his little, like, goggles on that are, like, pushing his ears like that, you know? He's, like, so adorable, and he's, pre- and he's pretty good at swimming, but all of a sudden, I'm watching him, and he's kind of swimming, kind of goes, and he goes, help, and he goes, and he goes down, starts swimming, and he reaches his head up, and goes, help, <laughs> so cute, so I just watched him. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Like, man, I'm going to put you on my Instagram story. Um, so in this moment, there's something that came over me that I'm like, i can't, I got to save my nephew. Like, he's drowning right now. So I, so I get out of my seat. I'm reaching to get him, and I actually fall into the pool, right? And so I'm literally just submerged in water, pick up my nephew, get him out of the water. You know, he's, he tends to he's totally okay and stuff like that. And all of a sudden, after I pass off my nephew, I look, and I'm like, Wet jeans. Oh, is there anything worse than wet jeans, right? Like, and just my shoes are soaked and things like that. My wallet, everything. Luckily, I didn't have my phone. Uh, but I'm just like, I have no change of clothes. And I'm like, well, this is, it. This is my attire for the night. But can I, can I tell you? There's never a moment that crossed my mind where my nephew is drowning that I stood at the edge of the pool saying like, I hate wet jeans. I like being comfortable. I didn't, look at, I didn't look at my nephew almost drowning, being like, is there someone else who could do this? Is there someone dressed for this? Right? Because did, did it cost me my comfort for the evening? Yes, but it never once crossed my mind of doing anything but that because the cause was so much greater than the cost. And when Jesus is laying this out, he's saying, there's, there's a cost to following me, but what you're signing up for is so much more significant and beautiful that it actually blinds you to the cost you're actually giving up. But the deception in our culture is we think that following Jesus means you're giving up life when all you're doing is gaining it. But not the life this world offers that can fall apart and is temporary and is fragile, but a kind of life that is solid and abundant and beautiful. And so when Jesus invites people to follow him, it's not trying to scare people away. He's just saying, you understand it costs you something, but what you're coming into is so much more worth it. And he displays this in what happens next in the story. It says, then he got into a boat and his disciples followed him. Suddenly a furious storm, literally the Greek word here means an earthquake of a, of a storm. So this is not just your ordinary windy day on the lake. So that the waves swept over the boat, but Jesus was sleeping. How, dude, how cool is Jesus? No big deal, sleeping on the boat. 
I'm on a boat. The disciples went and woke him, saying, Lord, save us. We're going to drown. He replied, you of little faith, why are you so afraid? Then he got up and rebuked the winds and the waves, and it was completely calm. The men were amazed and asked, what kind of man is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. I mean, what an amazing scene. So let's just kind of paint the picture here, right? So Jesus gets in this boat, starts going across the sea, and immediately we see that Jesus is tired, which is a whole other sermon of itself. Like, take some naps, right? Just write that down. That one's free. So Jesus is sleeping on the boat, and as this is happening, there's a storm that's rising and starting to build. And in Jewish literature, the sea is always a, it always is a reference to chaos and darkness and uncertainty, whether it's with the Red Sea that Moses crossed the Jordan, whether it's um, Jonah and the whale, Paul and the shipwrecks. It's, it's normally Jewish people didn't like the sea in their literature. So they're crossing the sea, and all of a sudden this storm comes upon them that they couldn't even imagine. And let's remember something. The people that are on the boat, his disciples, a good chunk of them were fishermen as a profession. They lived on the sea. These weren't people that were like, oh, this is kind of getting choppy. No, these people have weathered storm after storm after storm. They understood all the nuances of the sea of being people on a boat. And so you can imagine in this moment as Jesus is sleeping, it seems that because of how bad it got that they're not waking up Jesus as it's getting bad because they're leaning into their own ability, their own strength, and their own knowledge. Hello. When things get hard, when things get chaotic, they were leaning into their own abilities, not into their Savior. And as I was reading this this week, I just felt just kind of the moment from the Holy Spirit says, you, you do the same thing. You do the same thing. When you're surrounded by a storm in your life, you immediately start to think your way out of it. You try and strategize your way out of it. Or you try and have enough self-control and perseverance just to get through it. And you don't even think to actually go to your knees and say, Jesus, I know you're with me. I know you're in your boat. Would you come into this situation? And some of us here tonight need to recognize that Jesus has been with us all along, but you spend so much time exhausting yourself in your own strength and resources that you have left yourself to the point where you feel like you're actually going to drown. Isn't that what they said? They didn't come to Jesus and say, things are getting bad. They didn't come to Jesus and said, I'm concerned. They came to Jesus and said, we're going to die. There are no more options. And what Jesus does next is so brilliant. Jesus doesn't get up and rebuke the waves. He rebukes them. Jesus has the ability and the strength and the power to calm a storm, but in his priorities, in his kingdom priorities, he calmed their soul first. This is so huge. I want you to get this. There are so many times in our lives that we are so concerned about Jesus calming our circumstances and the storms we have, but we never invite him into calming our own soul. There's a reason why Matthew put those things in order the way he did. There's a reason why Jesus did them in the order that he did them. Because there was actually a time gap, whether it was a few seconds or a few minutes, we don't know, where he looks at his disciples and rebukes them and brings peace to them. 
It says, you have little faith. It's trust. Trust in me. Trust in the Lord actually disarms anxiety that we naturally lean into. And after he does that, sometime later, we don't know how long, then he rebukes the waves. And I think tonight, I can't promise you, I wish I could, you guys, I wish I could tell you, your circumstances, your storm are going to be gone tonight. We're going to pray and they're going to be gone. I, I can't do that. God can do that. But what I can promise you tonight is God wants to show up in your life and he wants to calm your soul. He wants to speak to your spirit and to your heart tonight. And he says, I don't want you to be anxious. I don't want you to, to, to drain yourself, to worry yourself, to, to exhaust yourself. Just come and get me. Just come to the end of yourself. I remember a time in my life where, I, like the disciples, I just came to the end of myself where I literally said, I have nothing left. About nine years ago, when, when Jen's dad passed away, we got this phone call that rocked our world. Her dad died in this horrific and tragic way, and it was, it was, it was traumatic to our whole family. And I'm watching my wife, my full of life, joyful, beautiful wife, get hit with this grief and this depression that was just earth-shattering. And in that moment, as I tried to minister to my wife, and I did exactly what the disciples did, I tried to do it on my own strength and my own reasoning and things like that, what happened is my body and my mind collapsed. I got severe vertigo, couldn't drive for about two or three months. I had to take about five naps a day just to function. I would try and preach. I tried to do these things. As the first time I got hit with anxiety, I talked about that a few weeks ago. I was having anxiety attacks. And my body and my mind were just like, didn't know what to do. My heart was broken for my wife and her family. And, and our, our world, it, it seemed like we're on this earthquake of a storm kind of thing. And our whole orientation just got flipped upside down. And I remember there was a night just like this. And I got up in front of our youth group to preach a sermon, and I got up with my notes, and I just looked down at my notes, and I just said, I can't do this. Oh, I still remember that night. I, I literally, like, tears in my eyes, my like, guys, I have nothing left. I have nothing left to give. Like, I'm so sorry. I'm just, I'm, I'm sad, and I'm tired, and I'm hurting. And in this moment, and it was, and, and I realized in the moment that I had been so prideful and I, would, I worked so hard not to show my weakness that what had happened is I ended up causing more harm to myself. And on this night, it was the most beautiful thing that ever happened. A bunch of junior hires and high schoolers surrounded me and my wife and prayed for us for two hours. Oh, man, just, just talk about calming the storm. The faith of these children just pouring out over us. It didn't change the circumstances. It didn't remove the grief. But what happened, I literally remember that night, something shifted in my spirit. For all of a sudden, that, that comfort I was trying to create myself was coming from Jesus. The security I felt like I had lost all of a sudden was reminded that he's with me in everything. And everything didn't change in a moment, but something did start to shift in me as Jesus began to calm the storm that existed within my own soul. What happens, what happens next in the story is what N.T. Wright calls the crescendo of chapter 8. So Jesus, at this point, has healed a leper, 
a centurion's servant, Simon's mother-in-law. He just calmed creation itself. And it seems that this entire story is pointing to what happens next. Like he's on this journey and things are going well and crowds are building and things like that. He leaves his successful, flourishing ministry, risks his life and the life of his disciples. Probably not his life, he's God. But he risks everything as so his disciples thought to get to the shores of, of this strange Gentile town called the Gadarenes. The Gadarenes was, had no Jewish people living there as far as we know. Uh, which would have been, uh, again, you're, you're a Jewish person reading this. So all of a sudden you're thinking, what is Jesus doing there? Shouldn't he be around his people? Very much the socioeconomic world back then was very much a class system, a culture system. And so Jesus has just left his people and is now on the shores of the Gadarenes. And who he's met with, Our Matthew records two, Mark and Luke only record one, but these two demon-possessed guys who are living in the tombs come and approach him. And in Mark and Luke's gospel, it talks about how they come to them and he says, what is your name? It says, Legion, for there are many of us. So Legion was a 2,000 ranked number. So you can imagine, here are these, these couple of dudes are coming that say they are so violent, no one can even pass by them. And that's their welcoming party. And you can imagine his disciples be like, we almost died and left that for this? And I love what happens next. It says that these demons cry out to him and they begged Jesus, send us into this herd of pigs, which Jesus goes and does and these pigs run into the water and they die. But this is what I want you to focus on. I have a hard time when, when pastors and when the church paint the demonic and Satan and Jesus like it's some big UFC fight, like who's going to win? Listen, my friends, whenever 2,000 demons see Jesus by himself, they are reduced to beggars. There is no duality here. There is no who's going to win. And the same way Jesus flexed his muscle to calm creation, he flexed his muscle to shut the mouth of darkness. And as he encounters this presence and sends them to their demise, what happens are these two men are liberated. This is what I want you to get. The two men that would have been the last people on the planet that these people would have assumed would have been touched by God. I mean, just think about this, right? They're, they're not, again, this is audience, this is Jewish audience. They're not Jews, they're Gentiles. But not only that, they're demon-possessed ones, so they've obviously upset God. And not only that, they live in tombs, which if you know anything about the cleanliness culture within Judaism and the laws around that, you would have been unclean. So this, these are the last people that could have anything to do with God. And Jesus, who is God in the flesh, leaves this successful, flourishing ministry, gets in a boat, risking his disciples' lives to go and meet these two individuals who have been completely ostracized by society because they mattered to him. Listen, you cannot ever overestimate how much you matter to Jesus. And if you're like, well, I don't know if Jesus would do that for me. Can I tell you, he did that for you. 
Except for he didn't cross a sea, he crossed the divine heavens. He left his throne to become a baby in a manger so that he could live a life and die the death so he could have you. You see, he didn't just go through a storm that risked life. No, he went to a cross that took his life. And he did that for you. And believe me, I think sometimes we read the Bible too individualistically, but in this case, it's all about this individual. We, in the other gospel accounts, it actually says that they come and they ask him, can I follow you? They give their lives to this liberator, this person who brings them freedom. And the shepherds who saw this happening, the, the pig shepherds, go back and the pig herders go back and tell the city not about their entire economic system that just crashed, but about the liberation of these individuals. And they go back and they ask Jesus to live. And I love this. The success of Jesus' ministry was not the gathering of crowds, but the liberation of an individual. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. If you're here tonight and you feel like you're far from God, whether that's just like, Men, like you don't know if you believe in him. You don't know. Can I tell you, that's absolutely okay because I don't think these guys believed in him either. You're welcome here. You're welcome to be a part of this community. Um, we, we strongly believe you're allowed to belong before you believe. There are many people in this room right now that I, that I know of, that I've had conversations with, and they've just been open with me. Like, I don't know where I'm at with Jesus. And can I tell you, that's, that is absolutely okay. But I do want you to understand this, whether, whether you're in that row or whether you've been to church so many times, you've become numb to the love that he showed. Would you tonight realize that there is nothing that God will not do or has not done to come and prove his absolute radical love for you? And if you hear one thing, would that be it? And he proved it, not just for these men on the shores of the Gadarenes. He proved it to you on the cross 2,000 years ago. And he invites us into it again today. And he'll invite us tomorrow. His mercies are new every morning. We, we wake up, no matter if you're hungover, if you're anxious, he's going to wake up and he's going to say, here I am again with mercy to meet you. And maybe that's you tonight. Maybe, maybe, maybe you're here tonight and, and you identify with the people in the middle of a storm. You've encountered something in your life or are encountering something in your life that is so overwhelming and dark and chaotic that you literally feel like you're about to drown. Jesus wants to calm your heart. And then maybe you're, maybe you're, maybe you're the first couple of guys. Maybe you're someone in here tonight and you've been standing on the shores of your faith and Jesus is saying, will you come with me? You believe in him, you've seen him, but the cost has scared you. And tonight Jesus is inviting you into not to look at the cost alone, but to look at the cause he's bringing you into that you would leave your own shores and travel a distance and go through things you never thought would because there's people on the other side of other lakes, of other shores that are trapped and lost and desperately need hope and healing. And you have the ingredient 
that they need, and his name is Jesus. But you've got to get on the boat. As scary as you may feel that is, it's worth it. If you guys just bow your heads with me. Actually, let me just tell you one more quick, quick little story to illustrate this. Um, because I'm tired and I can. <laughs> um, uh, this is a moment, and if, forgive me if I've shared this before. I'm, I have no memory right now. But uh, there was this moment uh, a few months back where I came home from work, and I'm met by my son. He's so precious, and I tell stories about him all the time, but here's another one. And he's covered in pizza sauce, right? He's covered in just like spaghetti sauce. And if you know me, I hate anything that's like sticky or messy. It's weird. Um, but isn't like cleanliness close to godliness or something like that? So maybe I'm godly. Um, <clears throat> so he comes running at me like, Dada! And I'm like, oh my gosh, my son. And then I look at him I'm like, whoa, whoa, dude. Go clean yourself up, man. And he's just like, and he's chasing me, so I, so I do what every loving dad does, and I avoid him, you know? So I just, like, walk around, and he's chasing me, and I'm like, Jen, like, he's a mess, and she's like, and he's like, he missed you. I'm like, well, like, he should clean himself, you know, get a hose. So he's, like, following me. At this point, he's, like, crying, like, dad, I don't want to, you know, like, can't talk, but he's just like, he doesn't understand. He's like, why am my dad avoiding him? I'm like, look at you. And so he's following me around the house, and and so I'm like, fine. And so I, I, I go into his room. He follows me in his room. He's crying. And I literally, like, palm his head. And I'm, like, wiping him down like this as he's, like, scrapping at me, like, trying. I'm like, nope. And I'm, like, trying to clean him up. And I, and I kid you not, it sounds funny, but I heard the Holy Spirit so loud speak to me. He said, pick him up. You know those moments you're like, is that really God? <laughs> you know, <laughs> totally did that. So, and once again, pick him up. So I picked up my son, and without fail, he just nuzzles into my beard, and there's just like pizza sauce all over my clothes and my face, and I'm just like, ugh. <laughs> but something happens, and he immediately stops crying. And I start to clean him up again, and he calms down. And I hear the Lord whisper to me and it's just in, in the most piercing way. He says, aren't you glad that I didn't make you clean yourself up before I embraced you? And I was like, whoa. And he's like, but you didn't just get pizza sauce on me. He's like, I took on your sin. I bore that for you. And now I'm holding you in my arms and I'm cleansing you. And I literally just start like weeping in my, my son's room and Jen walks around the corner and I'm crying and there's pizza sauce everywhere. She's like, what happened to you? I'm like, I have a moment. But I tell that story because I, I think that you guys, for me, it's always going to be ingrained in my memory of this moment where my son taught me a very valuable lesson. That Jesus never hesitates to welcome us and embrace us in our most messy, imperfect place in our life. And he draws us in, calms our soul, and begins a process of making us who we were always intended to be, which is whole and clean. And so I'm going to ask you guys to bow your heads now. Let's just spend some time in prayer, and then we'll, we'll get out of here. So thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord.
Father, I just want to, I want to pray tonight. Matter of fact, I'm just going to ask you guys just to respond. If, you, if you're here tonight and you, um, you're those first two guys, right? You, you've been standing on the shores of your faith. You come to church every once in a while. You, you're okay with Jesus, but there's something about you that just, like, man, I, I, I like my life too much to risk it by giving it to Jesus. And tonight you are feeling this pull on your heart just to just follow Jesus and to believe that the cause he's inviting you into is worth the cost. If, that, if that's you, with everyone just kind of closing their eyes, would you lift up your hand, not for me, but just to the Lord? I'd love to just pray for you. It's awesome. It's awesome. Thank you guys for lifting up your hands and guys and gals. It's incredible. It really is amazing. Lord, I just want to pray for these hands, Lord Jesus, because there's a lot of them. Um, I feel like that's me so oftentimes. I just feel like I, I choose what's comfortable rather than what's, what's purposeful and meaningful. And Lord, I pray that you would help us get off the shores and into the boat with you. Or that we would believe that what you have for us is life. Thank you, Jesus. And, and secondly, as you guys are still closing your eyes, if you're here tonight, um, I, I really felt specifically I wanted to pray for this. If you're here tonight and you just feel like there's a storm raging in your life and you don't know what to do, would you just lift up your hand? I just want to pray for you. Awesome. Awesome. If, if that's you, just very, would you put your hands in your lap, like holding them open? I just want, I feel like the Lord wants to calm hearts tonight and, and this isn't, notice this, there's no music playing, this isn't emotionalism. I believe this is real. Like Jesus wants to do something in your heart tonight. So, Father, for, for the dozens of hands that were just raised right now, the people who are just confessing, my life feels like a storm. It feels disorienting and dark and chaotic, and I don't know which way is up and which way is down. Lord, I pray right now that in the name of Jesus, to every heart, to every mind that is racing and distracted and weary, I speak over you, peace, be still. I just speak your shalom, Lord Jesus. Holy Spirit, would you come and provide that peace that surpasses understanding, the peace that guards hearts and minds, Lord, that you would do this in the powerful name of Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. And lastly, um, if you're here tonight and you have a hard time or have had a hard time believing that God loves you, and I know love can just kind of be a junk drawer term, it can be a kind of throwaway word, but, but I mean it, like pursues you, delights in you, desires you, likes you, wants you, and you just have, there's something blocking you from understanding that reality, and you just want to encounter God's love tonight, would you lift up your hand, I want to pray for you as well, awesome, awesome, man, Jesus, I just want, I want to just lift up these people here tonight, who are just crying out and say, like, I, 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 I see what you're doing, but God, I just, I want to feel it. I want to feel your love. Lord, I ask that right now that they would just feel a tangible sense of your embrace. Lord, that they would know your mercy, know your grace. That you, they would know that you have pursued them and will not stop. Jesus, would you just come right now when you wrap your arms around them through your spirit and would they understand that whether they feel it or not, it is reality, it is true. 
that your love was already proven on the cross. It's as far as we need to look. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. And Lord, we just ask for every one of us, Lord, we, we, we're all in process, God. We're all in process. Help us to know you better. Help us to, to disassemble the wrong thoughts we have about you and that you would slowly put them back together with right vision. In Jesus' name, amen.